The God of the possible always makes the best decision. But because he is dealing with possibilities and not certainties, because he is dealing with free moral agents, he cannot guarantee that things will always go as he would wish. The God of the possible is, to a limited extent at least, a risk-taking God. The only way to deny that God takes risks is by maintaining that everything that occurs in the world is exactly as God wanted it to occur. Some Calvinists are willing to accept this. But most of us find the idea deplorable. And this means that we must accept the idea that God is a risk-taking God. His risks are always wise, but they are risks nonetheless. For some things may not turn out as he wishes. While some things about the future are settled according to God's will, it was also God's will to create a cosmos populated by free agents. And this means that the outcome of some things will, to some degree, be uncertain to God. That quotation comes from a theologian, contemporary theologian, by the name of Greg Boyd. Gregory Boyd, very, very popular today, has a ministry called Renew, spelled with a K. And Greg Boyd is what we call an open theist. He is an open theist. And what is open theism? Well, there's a handful of ways that we could go about defining it, but the key element of open theism is open theists deny that God knows the future. Open theists say that the future is not known to God. It doesn't exist, so it can't be known to God. To say God knows the future is to say God knows a unicorn. It's to say God knows a square circle. You can't know something that doesn't exist. The future doesn't exist, so God does not know the future. So open theists would claim that God is omniscient, which is an attribute of God where he knows all things, but they define that term a little differently than us. When we, as Orthodox Christians, affirm the omniscience of God, we affirm that he knows all things and that part of those all-knowable things is the future where the future is going. But open theists deny that. They believe in a God who can learn, a God who can be surprised, a God who can wish he would have maybe done something different in the past. That quote that I read to you at the beginning was part of a larger commentary on an interesting verse that has presented itself to us in our 1 Samuel series. Greg Boyd was commenting on 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 11. Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15? First Samuel chapter 15, we will read verses 10 and verse 11. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. 1 Samuel 15, verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. 
Well, as I mentioned last week, we are continuing in sort of a topical sermon series break, if you will, from our normal routine of just preaching through 1 Samuel verse by verse. And I mentioned last week that as we came to 1 Samuel 15, there were two elements in this text that are controversial today. And my fear was if we just preached through the text as normal, I wouldn't have time to address these things, and then they would serve as distractions. You would read these two difficult elements, and we would maybe miss out on the larger sermon because we would be thinking about those things. And so I decided to take last week and this week to just focus on those difficult elements of this text. And then next week we will be back to our normal, regular scheduled program, if you will. And the first thing we looked at was 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, where God commanded the slaughtering of women and children, of babies and infants. And so we took that head on last week and talked about how we as Christians handle that, how we cope with that, how we deal with that, how we understand that. And I called that the issue of divine violence. I wanted us to de deal with this very hard issue of divine violence. And then, I don't know how many of you saw, but I encouraged in the weekly email for you to read 1 Samuel 15 and try to determine what's the other controversial element in 1 Samuel 15. And the cat's now out of the bag. It's verse 11. What is controversial about 1 Samuel 15 verse 11? This is what theologians refer to as divine repentance. The English, that I, the, ESV, the English Standard Version that I read from used the word regret, which is the most common word used in the text. But your Bibles might say repent. That's, the, that's what the Hebrew word is, the word for repentance. And so some take a little bit more literal of an interpretation. Some say the context, this is more like regret than repentance. But your Bible will most likely say one of two things. It'll either be God expressing repentance or God expressing regret. Last week we looked at divine violence. This week we're looking at divine repentance. Does God repent? It's interesting when we think of that, based on our preconceived notions of God, we would say absolutely not. Because repentance implies a mistake. It, 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 it implies sin. And it even sometimes implies that you are fallible. You didn't know what would happen. And so you need to stop and fix course. So we would say God does not repent. Repentance is for fallen sinners. But here we have a Bible verse that expresses God's repentance. Or maybe your translation says regret. I ask you, does God regret you say, no, of course not, because what does regret imply? It implies that he made maybe not the best decision, and he wishes he would have made something else, but we believe in a God who only makes the best decisions. And it really implies that God didn't see this coming. When you regret something, you made a choice, and then the, circum the outcome was you, you didn't see it coming. Does God not see things coming? Again, we say no, but the text seems to say Yes. Last week what we looked at was emotionally heavy. This week, 1 Samuel 15 presents to us something that's a little more intellectually heavy. What do we do with our preconceived notions about God in this text which calls him, which presents him as being regretful or repentant? We will see next week what Saul did, but what has happened here, the overall context, Saul has finally pushed God to his limits. Saul has already disobeyed God enough up to this point that God cut off his lineage. 
Do you remember a couple weeks ago, God said, your, your descendants will not sit on the throne. I'm going to turn to somebody else. But God did not give up on Saul yet. He gave up on Saul's lineage, but not Saul. But what we will see next week is 1 Samuel 15, God gives up on Saul. And he expresses regret, repentance that he ever made Saul king in the first place. And so we want to deal with this. Does this not imply, not just that God made a mistake, but more specifically, does this not imply that God actually maybe doesn't know the future, at least not exhaustively, not perfectly? Greg Boyd also said this about the verse, common sense would suggest that one can only regret a decision if one, if one makes, if the decision's result is an outcome other than what was expected or hoped for. If God foreknows all that shall ever occur, however, he can never truly expect or hope for something to occur which doesn't come to pass. Hence, it rules out God experiencing bona fide regret over his decisions. Could God genuinely confess, I regret that I made Saul king, if he could in the same breath also proclaim, I was eternally certain of what would happen if I decided to make Saul king? God sometimes expresses regret and disappointment over how things turned out, even occasionally over things that resulted from his own will. If the future was exhaustively and eternally settled, it would be impossible for God to genuinely regret how some of his own decisions have turned out. Isn't that how we need to read this text? What do we do with a God who regrets? What do we do with a God who repents? Does this mean that God does not know the future? We're going to answer that question today, and we're going to do a two-step process. I want us to begin big picture, answer the question, what is the general position of the Bible? And then we will establish that and then narrow in, well, then what do we do with a verse like this? So let's start big picture. And let's answer this question. Does God know the future? And the answer to that question from Genesis to Revelation is unequivocally, unabashedly, absolutely yes. Yes. God knows every exhaustive detail of everything that will happen from here on out. Now, how do we know this? We could spend weeks studying the biblical data on this, so let me just give us a handful of reasons to believe this. First and foremost, let me just say right from the outset that the demand that when we read, before we even talk about what it does mean, let me talk about what it does not have to mean, that God would regret something does not in any way, shape, or form imply that he did not see it coming. It doesn't imply that. We do not have to read the text that way. And by the way, there are plenty of times in the Bible where even many open theists will understand that. So for example, let me just give you one example. After the fall of man, after Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled, what's the first thing that comes out of God's mouth? You remember? Adam, he asked him a question. Where are you? Would a common sense reading not dictate that God doesn't know where Adam is? I mean, why would he ask a question? If somebody asks a question, the common sense assumption is that they don't know the answer. 
But even many open theists agree, well, okay, yeah, fine. God's allowed to ask rhetorical questions. He asks this for a reason. They understand that the God who just not long ago made everything out of nothing. The only exception being he hasn't made humanity yet. He has, but there's only two people. So the God who's big enough to make everything out of nothing, and he's only made two people, has managed to lose one of them? Everybody knows. Now, some open theists will just to be consistent, they will say, yes, God lost Adam. They will say that. Many of them will. But a handful of them recognize, well, no, he's asking a rhetorical question in order to get a response from Adam. So the text says, Adam, where are you? But we are not supposed to imply God doesn't know where Adam is. So just because the text says, I regret, we don't get to just immediately assume, therefore, he doesn't know the future. Maybe, but it doesn't have to mean that. Just like a question could be rhetorical, could not. We don't know. We need context. So do not just assume this is the common sense reading. Says who? But let's get into more hard specifics. Why should 1 Samuel 15.11 not deter us from believing that God knows the future exhaustively? Well, here's what's so amazing. Samuel, after writing verse 11 knew how difficult that verse would be. And so within 1 Samuel 15, he gives us a tidbit to help clarify that. So stay in 1 Samuel 15, but look at verse 29. At the risk of spoiling something. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. The glory of Israel is an expression for God. Yahweh is the glory of Israel. And he says in verse 29... And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Isn't this astonishing? You see, there are, there are non-Christians in the world who believe that the Bible has contradictions in it. And obviously, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, so I reject that. But I also reasonably understand that some claims of contradiction way more than others. What I mean by that is there are some alleged contradictions that I can admit, yeah, this is a tough thing to make sense of. There are other contradictions where I'm just like, are you kidding me? You think that's a contradiction? They're not all created equal. And some of the contradictions that make a little bit more sense to me are when you find contradictions from like way over the Bible, alleged contradictions, right? So one man in one culture wrote something and then logic would say, yeah, if, if you take the work of the Spirit out of it, someone writing 6,000 years later, maybe not quite that long, two, 3,000 years later in a different culture, in a different time, might say something and yeah, maybe they don't line up. I disagree that the Bible ever does that, but that kind of makes some sense to me. Here's what doesn't make sense to me. A competent man like Samuel, who restored and led one of the most powerful people groups on earth, would be so audacious to contradict himself within two paragraphs so blatantly and none of the people had a problem with him they decided to canonize his writings anyway. Like, it's not like I found something, the Bible, hey, the Bible says this in James, but you realize way over in Exodus it says this? How do you make sense of this? It's the same chapter talking about the same event. It's the same author. And here the author is unabashedly in verse 11 saying God repented or God regretted and then almost immediately after saying, now, by the way, God doesn't repent. He doesn't regret. So obviously, this didn't bother Samuel, and it didn't bother his original hearers. So that tells me maybe this is bothering us contemporary readers today for an unnecessary reason. 
As a matter of fact, I really do believe that what Samuel was doing was he put this in here so as not to trip us up. He is giving us a hermeneutical clue of not to read verse 11 so, so literally and specifically. Many commentators have seen this, by the way. Let me read what one commentator said. He said, my alternative way of thinking about these texts is God foreknows the grievous and sorrowful effects of some of his own choices. For example, to create Adam and Eve and to make Saul king. These effects are genuinely grievous to God as he sees them in himself. Yet he does not regard his choices as mistakes that he would do differently if he only foreknew what was coming. Rather, he wills to do some things which he then genuinely grieves over in part when the grievous effect comes to pass. Now, someone might say, that does not sound like what we ordinarily mean when we use the term regret or repentance. And I would respond, that is exactly what Samuel said. God will not lie or repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. In other words, Samuel means something like this. I say God repented that he made Saul king. I do not mean that God experiences repentance precisely the way ordinary humans do. He is not a man to experience repentance this way. He experiences it his way, the way one experiences repentance when one is all wise and foreknows the entire future perfectly. The experience is real, but it's not like finite man experiences it. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. He's saying Samuel wrote verse 29 to make us go back and say, by the way, when I said God repented or God regretted, please don't think that I mean that word the way you and I do it. Because you and I are men and God is not a man. He does not repent or regret the way we do. And by the way, it's important for us to see this verse because there's another element in it. This is not original to Samuel. He's actually quoting from scripture. Turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. This is a prophet speaking, a bizarre prophet, but a prophet nonetheless speaking. Verse 19, Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, will he not fulfill it? Samuel is quoting from that. Now, here's why that's so important. Here we have two, two Bible verses that say God is not a man and therefore he doesn't repent or regret. And then we have a Bible verse where God says, I repent or regret. So the question is, which one should modify the other? Which one should take precedence? And here's how we know this one needs to take precedence. The open theist will say, no, God says he repented, he regretted. So I'm going to go to numbers and I'm going to reinterpret numbers in light of the fact that God says he repents and regrets. But you want to know what none of the open theists do? I've never seen an open theist who's ready to admit this next statement. God tells lies. Even the open theist would say, no, no, no. God is perfectly moral. He's perfectly just. He doesn't know the future, but that doesn't make him evil. He is a perfectly just God. He is always good. But what does Numbers 23, 19 say? God is not a man. He's not a man. So he doesn't do the things that men do. What do we do? We repent, we regret, but there's something else we do. We lie. 
How do you know God will never lie to you? The book of Hebrews tells us it is impossible for God to lie. How do you know God will never lie to you? Because he can't. He's not able to because he's God. He's not a man. So notice, they want to take half of verse 19 and say, well, yeah, Numbers doesn't really mean that. But they're not willing to take the first half. Numbers 20 through 19, he is not a man that he should lie. So if you want to believe in a Christianity where God can genuinely repent and regret just like we do, that's fine, but just make sure you take all of the worldview with you and you now to believe, need to believe in a God who is just like man and does and can lie. It's a package deal. So we see Samuel, Numbers, it has provided for us a clear and explicit understanding of who God is, and that needs to go and interpret verse 11 in light of that. God is not a man. He does not lie. He does not fail to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He does not regret or not know the future. He's not a man. That's what men do. That's not who God is. And again, I'll, I'll explain a little bit more what I think verse 11 is saying, but that's important for us to know. Another reason why you should believe God knows the future, biblical prophecies. All throughout the Bible, we have God telling us what the future holds, and it always comes true. The open theists try to interpret that as God is a predictor of events. In the same way that the weatherman can tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, he doesn't see the future, but he's able to look at what's happening now and make a high probability guess. And so the open theists say that's what God is doing. God is, he's looking at the present tense future now and it's like reading the weather. Okay, I think this is going to happen. I think this is going to happen. And they would say sometimes he's wrong. But I would encourage you to buy a book on biblical prophecy, study biblical prophecy and see if that's really the picture the Bible gives us. And remember, the, what I read in the beginning, the reason the open theist says this is their commitment comes from the fact that if God knows the future, if he knows what you will do tomorrow, then what's the open theist conclusion? You don't have free will. And every Calvinist in America says, Amen. <laughs> Amen. You see, this is why one of the problems, open theists are not Christians. I'm going to prove that in a minute. But non-Calvinists are Christians. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. But they have the same problem that the open theist is talking about here. The open theist is right. If, if God knows tomorrow at noon you're going to eat a strawberry yogurt, you have to do it. What's the, op what's the only other alternative? You don't do it, and then what does that say about God? He was wrong. His knowledge is imperfect. So the open theist is saying the Arminians, the non-Calvinists, think that they've gotten off of the Calvinist determinist thing where God knows and predestines all things. And the Arminians say, no, God doesn't predestine all things, but he does know all things because we have free will. And the open theist is saying, you still don't have it. The only way to have genuinely free will is if God doesn't know what you're going to do tomorrow. So the open theists recognize that there is a dichotomy. Either God predestines everything or the future is open and unsettled. Those are your only two options. Pick wisely. And the open theist would say, I would rather have a God who can make mistakes than man who doesn't have free will as I define that term. But biblical prophecies, here's the problem, incorporate so many free will decisions, our minds literally cannot fathom it.
Let's just take one biblical prophecy, just one, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. It's a very explicit, very clear biblical prophecy. I want you to imagine over the 800 years or so that passed, how many free will decisions had to take place in order for all the world to be in the exact right scenario so that Joseph would go to Bethlehem for a census and he would take his wife along with him? How many free will decisions had to happen in order for the Roman Empire to rise up, take over the Jews, and then demand a census? We're talking trillions and trillions of free will decisions that are happening over the course of hundreds of years that lead to this very specific notion that the Nazarite family would go to Bethlehem and Joseph wouldn't go by himself. He would for some reason decide to take his whole family and then Mary just so happens to have a baby while she's there. We are talking trillions of free will decisions and, and your position is supposed to be that God looked at the signs, he read the omens, and he guessed this? The future is settled, and that includes our free will choices. God can predict and know our free will choices. Biblical prophecy proves it. Every prophecy that comes true incorporated countless free will choices. God knew them, he saw them, he revealed them to us. But let's, uh, you're probably sick of hearing me talk philosophy. Let's get to the Bible. Open your Bibles up to Isaiah chapter 40. Well, we, we won't read right from Isaiah chapter 40, but while you turn there, let me take a side note and tell you about the glory of Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah chapter 49. This entire section, these nine chapters, are oftentimes referred to as the trial of the false gods. The trial of the false gods. Because what is happening in Isaiah chapter 40 all the way through Isaiah 49 is God is calling the false gods of the idols to come have a competition with him and see who the true God is. It's glorious. It's glorious for a handful of other reasons. Let me just list some of them briefly. We have time. In, in this section, we have God prophesying that Jerusalem would eventually be overtaken by a pagan nation and that God would rise up another pagan nation led by a man named Cyrus and that Cyrus would come in and do the Lord's work, free Israel, send them back to their homeland and let them rebuild their city. That's a lot of specifics I just mentioned and it's a few hundred years before the events. And guess what we know happened in human history? The Babylonian Empire overtook the Jews. God raised up the Persian Empire who was led by a man named hmm, Cyrus. I guess his parents didn't have a free will to name him something else. God said his name would be Cyrus. His parents named him Cyrus. God raises up Cyrus. Cyrus hears a word from the Lord. He comes down. He overtakes Babylon. And then he sends and commissions the Jews back to their homeland to rebuild their city. And how many free will choices happened in all that? God predicted it 300 years and it happened on the spot exactly as God said it would. We also have the clearest expression in all of the Bible of monotheism. All throughout these chapters, over and over and over and over again, God said things like, I am the only God. Is there any like me? I know not any. To whom shall you compare me? Is there any other God besides me? I know not any. Over and over again. We also see very clear, explicit testimony to God's sovereignty over history. That he is in control and he is working things exactly how he wants. And we see these amazing promises of hope and salvation for God's people. I would encourage you, read these nine chapters this week. 
Go, go home this week, read a chapter or two a day, read Isaiah 40 through 49. It's glorious. But the specific element of glory we're going to focus on here is Isaiah's clear, clear teaching of God's knowledge of the future event. And in context, not just that the text says that, but remember, the context is about determining how we know God is God. So I, turn over one chapter to Isaiah chapter 41. We're going to fly through some things and then I'll comment on them afterward. Isaiah 41, look at verses 22 through 24. Or it's beginning 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things that they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Look at verses 26 through 29. Who declared it from the beginning? That we might know beforehand, that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among these. There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. What is God saying here? He's saying, you bring the false gods here. I'll prophesy the future, and let's see if they can prophesy the future. And if they can't, what does that make them? False. Any God that does not know the future is not a God at all. Tell us what is to happen that we may know that you are gods. Go to 40, chapter 44, verses 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Turn to Isaiah chapter 45, verses 20 through 23. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Turn, just this last one, Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11. 
Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, that's Cyrus, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. If your God doesn't know the future, Repent and come to Christ because you've not been worshiping God. And this is why we need to understand open theism, this is not a debate among brothers. This is a wicked heresy. If your God does not know the future, he's an idol. He's worthless. He doesn't exist. And by the way, this is also an important thing. Notice God's knowledge of the future in this last text, by the way, is not presented as a, even a prediction of something God is seeing. What is it presented as? Something he's doing. He's accomplishing it. This is a very, very important. I know this might be a little heavy, but this is really, really important for us to understand. In the Reformed world, we understand God's knowledge of the future as being based upon his purposes and decree. So in a very odd, ironic sense, we actually, to some degree, agree with the open theists. The future hasn't happened yet, therefore it's not a thing to be known. You, you can't know something that doesn't exist. So we would actually agree, in that sense, God does not know the future. But the reason we say God has knowledge of what is to come is because he is accomplishing the future. So the future is not something God looks at, sees it, and then knows it. It doesn't exist, but God is bringing history exactly where he wants it. So that's why God can say what is to come in the future. Not because he knows it, because he's doing it. This is very, very important. And let me explain to you why. The consequences are huge here. Because e even many people who have grown up maybe in a Reformed church still think of God's knowledge of the future wrongly. The, the, the picture, to, you, to speak in a metaphor, the picture we have that I often hear of God is that because he is outside of time, he can see all of time before him. So he knows the future because he can see it. That's a big problem. Because what does that mean? God is previewing a movie and he's able to see the end of the movie. But you want to know what my question is? Who's the writer and director of that movie? Who's the... God is looking at this future. He's looking down and saying, Oh, look at this future that I see. Who created it? We treat God like he's a fortune teller. Like God looks in his crystal ball. Guys, I'm going to tell you, Oh, guys, good news. Cyrus is going to come up and save you. Oh, but do I win in the end? Oh, what if Satan wins? I better look. Oh, <laughs> Okay, guys, Satan, went, Satan does not win in the end. I saw it. If God sees the future, then he's just another player in this game called fate. He's just another slave of fate like the rest of us. He sees the future and then says, okay, I guess that's going to happen. Is God able to look in the future, see something he doesn't like and change it? And if he does do that, then why didn't he see that change in the first place? It, it, it makes no sense. God does not see the future. He accomplishes it. He creates it. 
He makes it happen. When God tells us future events, he's not telling us what he saw. He's telling us what he will do. And if your God doesn't do that, then I would call you, repent of your idol. He's no God at all. So this leaves us in our remaining moments then. If, if, if we think that we firmly established, okay, you've, you've yelled and you've come in front of the pulpit, you've been very emotional, okay, I get it. God is omniscient, he knows the future. Okay, I get it. So what does this verse mean then? <laughs> We're not out of the woods yet, are we? So, so why does the text tell us that God regretted or that repented? What, what, how should we understand that? Well, there's kind of a two-step process to understanding this. The first step is understanding the Bible's use of what we call anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic language. What does an anthropologist do? What does an anthropologist do? Studies humans. Studies humankind. This is a word for human. So an anthropomorphic language is when we, it's when we personify something. It's when we ascribe human characteristics to a non-human entity. And we do this, by the way, not just with God. Right? Last week, Pamela and Joshua brought in donuts for us. And I remember being up from the pulpit thinking, those donuts are calling my name. If I would have said that, none of you would have looked at me like I'm crazy. You understand what that means. None of you would have said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Donuts do not talk. What do I do? I've personified it. I've spoken of it in anthropomorphic terms. I've given a non-human entity human characteristics because I decided that's the most helpful way for you to understand this mystical reality within me. Oftentimes, throughout the Bible, it's, it's all over the place. The non-human God, remember, this is especially before the incarnation, God is not a man. He's not a human. The non-human God is spoken of in anthropomorphic terms. He's given human characteristics that he doesn't actually have. The, the, the time this is the most obvious is when the spiritual God is described in physical terms. So the Old Testament says things like, nothing is hidden from the eyes of the Lord. But at least at the time that was written, the Lord didn't have eyes. The Old Testament says things like, may God shine his face upon you. God doesn't have a face. The Old Testament says the earth is the footstool for the Lord, but he doesn't have feet. The Bible talks about, may God protect us with his right hand. But at least in the Old Testament, God didn't have a right hand. We give God a body because that is the way we as fallen creatures best acquiesce this huge chasm in front of us. The fact of the matter is, this is good news. This, I'm about to say something, and it's going to be potentially the second best news you've ever heard today. God is not like you. Hallelujah. Amen, right? God is not like me. Trust me, it's very good news. But the problem is, that chasm between us and God is far greater than we care to admit. He is nothing like us. So how can we possibly understand him? How can we relate to him? Well, what God does is he humbles himself, he condescends to us, and he speaks in our language. When we talk about God speaking in our language, I don't just mean we're English speakers and he's preserved the word in English. I'm talking about he talks like us so that we can kind of understand what he's going through. We see this all throughout the Bible. For example, let me give one example in a non-physical term. The Bible talks about God thinking. 
His thoughts are not our thoughts, right? And you probably read that and don't even see that as anthropomorphic. You'd say, yeah, God thinks. Non-humans can think. That makes sense to me. But let me ask you this. What is thinking? How would you define thinking? The only way you've ever thought and the only way you've ever encountered thought is between fallible beings who don't know everything processing and learning new information. So if that's your definition of thinking, then God doesn't think. Like seriously, don't answer this out loud, but if you want to get really deep and metaphysical and philosophical, answer this question. What does it mean for an omniscient, all-knowing God to think? He can't learn anything new. He's eternal, so he doesn't have like sequence. Well, what does it mean for him to think? You want to know what the right answer to that? Seminary, I'm going to give you a great seminary answer. You, ready? you want to know what the right answer is to that? Really deep, really heavy. We don't know. I don't know what it means for God to think. But if God tried to explain that, I wouldn't get it. So he comes to my level. He says, you know this thing you do called thinking? That's kind of like what I'm talking about here. This is anthropomorphic language. The, the, one of the great examples of this is when Abraham goes up to the mountain to sacrifice his son. Who remembers what God says the moment Abraham picks up the knife and is about to drive it into his sacrificed son? He sends an angel who speaks on behalf of the Lord and says, Stop, for now I know that you fear me. Greg Boyd reads that text and says God learned something that day. But that contradicts even their own worldview because the open theist would say God doesn't know the future perfectly, but he does know the present perfectly. So God should have known the perfect state of Abraham's heart as he was walking up the mountain. That wasn't a future reality, that was a present reality. So even other open theists would recognize God knew that Abraham feared him. He knew that. That's why the book of Romans tells us that he was justified by that fear long before he went to the mountain. God knew that Abraham feared him, but God wanted to communicate something to us. That moment was important. It was important for God. It was important for Abraham. So God wanted to communicate that to us in a way that we understand. And he wanted to show us that faith needs to be proven. Faith needs to act. And so the best way for us to do that is when Abraham acted on his faith, God says, now I know you fear me. And he's not trying to tell us he actually learned something. He's trying to show us that your faith cannot be invisible. So what do we do with this divine repentance? And it simply means this. This is all 1 Samuel 15 verse 11 is saying. God is displeased with what has happened and he is now going to turn, i.e. repent, to a new course of action. God is displeased with what has happened and now he's going to turn. Calvin says, we ought not to imagine anything more under the term repentance than a change of action. Men testify their dissatisfaction by these kinds of changes. Hence, because every change, whatever among men, is intended as a correction of what displeases him, the correction proceeds from repentance. So the same term is applied to God simply to mean that his procedure has changed. God is merely saying, Saul has disobeyed me and it grieves me, so I'm going to do something else. You have no proof that he didn't see it coming. He doesn't say that. By the way, you can ex still experience what you know is coming. Many of you, before you got married, knew you were going to be happy on your wedding day. 
Many of you knew that that moment you said, I do, and kissed your spouse, that you would be happy. You knew that. You foresaw it. Let me ask you this. Did you still feel it? Did you still experience it? Were you still able to say, what joy, this is amazing? You knew it was coming, but you still experienced it. God knew Saul's rebellion was coming, but he still experienced it. He's expressing, I, I hate this. I, don't, I, I wish it wouldn't turn out this way. Again, anthropomorphic language. And so here's how we're going to finally end. I don't want this just to be purely academic. All right, the, pur the purpose of a sermon is very rarely just to inform our minds. Okay, I get it. God knows all things, and sometimes he uses anthropomorphic language, and all he's trying to express to us right now is that he's grieved by Saul, and he's going to go a different route, and he's going to raise up David. Okay, I get all that. That's all in the head. Here's what I want us to do. Why is this good news? Why should I be happy that a verse like 1 Samuel 15, 11 is in my Bible? If it causes all this confusion, if it's very difficult, why should this make us happy today? And here's how. You know what this verse reminds us of? You know what this verse tells us? God is a personal God. God is a personal Father who interacts intimately with us in time. In other words, here's the picture we could have of God. Saul is raised a king, and then Saul breaks God's commandments and now he no longer deserves to be king. And here's the picture we want of our omniscient, almighty, all-powerful God. We want God to say, I'm not bothered. I know the future. This doesn't concern me. I know the future. I'm in control of all things. Who cares? If Saul does this, I predestined it. Is that how you want your father to be? so far above you, careless, just doesn't care what's happening on earth because he predestines all things anyway. You want to know what we learn from a text like this? We learn this, really. Very simple. God loves you. God is not detached from you. His omniscience, his all-powerful nature, the fact that he is so much above you does not make him detached from you. So that when you sin, I don't care, I control all things. When you do something good, I don't care, I control all things. He knows all things, he controls all things, but he interacts with us in time so that when we sin, it grieves him. When we do good things, it pleases him. We serve a God who is not detached from us. That every moment of your life, he is intimately involved and he cares about you. He cares what you're doing. He cares how you're living. He cares what you're thinking. His grand, almighty nature does not cut us off from him. Yeah, God knows the future, but when Saul disobeyed him, it grieved him. And it grieved Samuel. Samuel cried all night long because of it. God knew it was coming, but it grieved him. It hurt him. And even that, by the way, is anthropomorphic language. This is a text that it reminds us that God is intimately involved in your life. He cares for you, he loves you, and he knows you. He's not just the grand communist sitting up controlling all things, doesn't care. I'm in control of all things. Who cares? That's not his disposition. 
He loves us. He knows us. He interacts with us in time. We can grieve Him, but glory to God, we can please Him.